find out why getting your day in court may not bring justice in the end. On today's episode, we'll help you to clear up misconceptions about divorce and family court. Chris Pastore, attorney mediator, will teach us about divorce mediation and how it can give you control, more control, over the process and pave the way for healing. I'm Sharon Pastore, and this is the Healthy Divorce Podcast. Let's move forward. You're listening to the Healthy Divorce Podcast. Join us as we help you navigate your divorce without going broke, relationships in ruin, or ending up in court. You'll get into financial and emotional shape, make sense of the legal process, get strong enough to negotiate for yourself, be a mindful parent, stay amicable with your spouse so you can get a fresh start. welcome your host for this episode, Adina Laver, founder of Courage to be Curious and formerly Divorce Essentials. You are tuned into a conversation between myself and my two guests today to bring you valuable information about divorce without court. In order to bring you the most amount of information, we do not take live questions, though we are very eager for you to get all the support you need. At the end of the call, we will let you know how you can reach out to us and ask questions. Please remember, if for any reason you get bumped off this conference line, just just call us back in. We'll be here. The title of our call today is Divorce Without Court. I'm really excited about this call because divorce without court is possible. My former spouse and I divorced without court, although I had heard and believed from the media and others who divorced that court was the only way to win. I want to introduce our guest for today. Chris Pastore is an expert, I repeat, expert attorney mediator and has been a practicing attorney for over 18 years. He became a private divorce mediator in 2007 when he grew increasingly frustrated by the destructive nature of the traditional court contested divorce process. After having mediated hundreds of divorce cases, Chris co-founded Mainline Family Law Center with the help of his wife, Sharon. Through working with clients and community education, Chris has made it his personal mission to revolutionize this area of practice so that families can emerge healthy and whole once again. On a personal note, I learned about mediation when I met Chris. I was so inspired by his passion, his knowledge, and his heart that I featured him in one of the resilience videos I produced. Chris, you want to say hello real quick? Hello. Thank you, Pam, for that uh, glorious introduction, and thank you all for joining in on this uh, important call uh, this afternoon. Awesome. In partnership with Mainline Family Law Center, Adina Labor, divorce coach, works with clients who are on the fence in the process of separating, getting a divorce, or are in any other way undergoing a significant change or transformation in their lives. Adina is also founder of Divorce Essentials, a specialized divorce coaching and support service for those committed to a healthy path for reclaiming their lives. Adina 
has been the host of these support calls for a long, long, long time. Today, for the first time, she is a guest. Woohoo! Woohoo! Would you like to say hello, Adina? I would. Thanks, Pamela. And uh, aside from the difficulties of dialing myself in as a guest, which is clearly more complicated for me than dialing in as the host, I am just thrilled to be here on this side of the call. So, th- And I'm so thrilled to, that you are the one who will be facilitating this conversation. So glad yeah. to be here, to be here on this important topic with Chris and with all of our guests today. Yes, thank you. All right, let's get into this. Divorce without court. Hmm. When I first read this title, I thought it was a misprint, and it was to read Divorce with Court. Now, if you are familiar with Divorce Court with Judge Lynn Toller, you already know it ain't pretty. It's sensationalized, and there are far too many horror stories, which is where I want to begin this conversation. Chris and Adina, which share with us one story each about your experience with clients in court. Go ahead, Chris. Okay, well, <laughs> oh, thank you, Adina. Well, geez, where do I begin? Uh, you know, uh, really, and it's, and it's uh, interesting and ironic. I, I, I don't have many war stories from the mediation uh, field itself, but I do have uh, many that come to mind from my days as a, um, an ex-practitioner in private practice of divorce. And, and uh you know, one, one war story in particular um, that I think about is um, uh, a custody case that went on for 10 years by the time that I left the particular firm I was working for. The Lord knows it could have been going on for longer. Um, and when I tell you um, the circumstances involved in this matter were just horrific, and, were, and this is one of the... Uh, Cases that that gave me the impetus really to leave the private practice and find a better way through the mediation process. Uh, um, uh, the, the mom and dad uh, were very, very extremely contentious. Uh, you had you had some very, very sordid circumstances that occurred. Um, they had one daughter. Uh, they had long since divorced. They, they had uh, completed their divorce, but the custody went on and on and on. Um, there were there were situations where uh, the mother actually planted a camera during dad's custody time with the child to kind of uh, to which of course is an illegal activity in his in his private home to to monitor you know uh, his relationship with the daughter. Uh, the daughter, of course, was in the middle of all this uh, and was extremely, extremely affected uh, by, as I say, 10-year, by the time I left the firm, a 10-year custody case going on and on, that unfortunately the daughter <clears throat> had made a suicide attempt, an attempt to take her own life. And that, you know, she survived, thankfully, but that, for me, was a, a, a huge eye-opener to say, my goodness, there's got to be a better way. Uh, when children are being affected in that way to the point where, you know, you have a child that wants to take their own life, that was a really a, a happy, adjusted child uh, before this whole dispute began between her parents. Uh, was a real eye-opener. So uh, when, you, when you say horror stories, I always think of that case first. Mm, yeah, indeed that is. Um, how about you, Adina? 
Um, you know, it's interesting, and I, I think, Chris, you and I talked about this before, that some of the most difficult cases really are around custody. And so for me, I'm thinking of a custody case as well. And, you know, before I, I just describe it a little bit, wanting to just piggyback off something you said about the child who was, you know, on the face of it, well-adjusted and things like that before all this happened. And, you know, one of the fears parents can have is that it's the divorce that upsets the stability of the child. And I think part of what we are going to be talking more about here, the distinction between it not necessarily being divorce itself, but the means by which we divorce that can create a very unstable environment. Mm. And so, um, you know, the fact that uh, that's, you know, the. So a little bit about your story that I was hearing as I was listening to it as well. And, you know, similarly, I think one of the most difficult stories um, I've been involved with is also a custody case. Um, and an international case where parents are no longer even living on the same continent, which is, presents all kinds of challenges and things like that. And like you, been going on for years. And I, part of the heartbreaking, not only the, the anger that seems perpetuated by the process for the parents, um, but also is what goes on in the particular courtroom. And, you know, judges who I can only imagine what it is like for them to meet people day after day in the angriest and most desperate times of their life, um, you know, can respond all different kinds of ways to that. But, you know, in particular case, this client who literally just screamed at over and over again, made belittled, made to feel small, made to feel that choices in her life were wrong choices, um, and just over and over again. And with really the process unfolding, not only in, in tearing her down as a person, but, you know, financially, that when you have somebody who's already acting as a single mother in a continent with far away from the spouse and without other support, that there's no recognition within the court system financially. And so, you know, in a case that's still going on, just on her side alone, of fees having already run up, you know, in excess of $120,000 um, mm. and not at the end yet when there's no money, you know, to even pay that. So the kind of debt that can ensue from battles that go on and on and, you know, sometimes in these situations without real end in sight because the court process will continue, can continue to go as long as parties perpetuate it. And so this idea of the financial devastation as well as um, what it does to the family over all this time is just really upsetting. So we've got financial devastation. We've got children in the middle. Um, we've got a lot of heartache and heartbreak. We've got judges making the decision for you, but yet we keep going back into court. So let's talk a little bit about the myths and misconceptions about going to court. Chris, why don't you start this? Sure. Well, the biggest one, the biggest myth, and, and when I ask uh, and have asked clients in the past who, who intend to go to court, what they expect to get out of it, uh, what I invariably hear over and over again is that well, I'm going to get my day in court. I'm going to get my chance to tell my my side of the story. I'm going to be able to tell a judge, um, you know, why I think um, I should have more custody, why I think I should have a greater piece of the assets. And I want – my tendency is I want to tell the judge about 
you know, certain circumstances that occurred in the marriage, uh, which they believe is relevant to the divorce. Uh, and then when they get there, uh, there is a bit of a rude awakening uh, that they're not going to be able to tell that story, that it simply is not relevant. The circumstances that led them to the divorce table, um, it, it doesn't matter. The courts don't are not concerned about who wanted it, who caused it, who didn't cause it, things of that nature. Um, and it's very hard line in terms of, how a court approaches it, you know, the law is the law and that law will be strictly applied. But most importantly, um, they think that they're going to be able to get before a court and have time to tell their story. And the reality is, is that, you know, in excess of 90, probably 95% or more of the, of divorce cases end up settling at the 11th hour before they even get to court. So most of them don't even go to court. So that you've worked your way up all, all the way to that point, um, and then, you know, imagine this letdown and sense of defeat that a client feels at the end that, geez, I didn't even, I, somebody's telling me what to settle here to, and I even ha- have not even had a chance to be heard, you know, my side of the story. And they, they just, you know, don't get that opportunity in most cases. And, and that's where they become the most disillusioned about the process and the most defeated by the time they get to the end. So that, that's a big myth for me. Well, well, Chris, let me just ask you about that. Can you explain a little bit more how it's settled at the 11th hour? I mean, how does that really work when people are ready to step into the courtroom? Well, typically, uh, you know, um, they, a couple might, uh, uh, the spouses might go through with their attorneys to what's called an equitable distribution conference, um, which is the final, usually the final stage of the divorce, the division of the assets, uh, whether there's going to be support and alimony to be paid. Usually child support is already worked out before they get there, uh, any interim spousal support. And now we're talking about, you know, dividing the estate. Um, and, what I, I've seen oftentimes and been involved in is that at the initial stage of this equitable distribution conference, it's used more or less, it's not used as a tool to settle necessarily the case, but sort of a, you know, an opportunity to, to for the client to gain a little bit more leverage in terms of negoti- negotiation. And so that they are kicked on, kicked on to the next level before the, before the judge, you know, some type of a hearing is set for equitable distribution. And then when I say 11th hour, I mean, it could be the very morning of the trial. It could be at the steps of the courthouse where the attorneys convene and say, Hey, look, let's work this thing out. And, you know, uh, they come, they're able to come to terms that literally at the, the 11th hour, when I say 11th hour, that's, mm-hmm. that's a lot of times what can happen. Yeah, so so we've been going through all this process of building up to court, the expense of it, and then we don't even get there. That's right. Yeah, in many cases, yeah. In many cases, ninety-five percent. Um, Adina, what what do you want to add into here about a myth or misconception? I'm really particularly interested in your perspective as a female um, in in this in this uh, you know in the myths and misconceptions, if that has any relevance. 
Right. Um, so I'll offer a couple things. One is just to add on to something that Chris said, because I just priced this out for a client this morning, is even without trial prep, meaning doing all that work to get to the 11th hour, you know, this particular client looking at six days of trial, what would just the six days in court cost? And we were talking about a bill tab for her of like between twenty to $25,000 just for the days in court without any of the prep for courts. So just as a little bit of a reality check um, on the kinds of costs we can be talking about. So in terms of things that I want to add to it, um, there's something I want to add to Chris's description and then talk about it perhaps from the, you know, a female perspective or offer that lens or really for both parties. You know, one is that the sense that someone is going to lose and someone's going to win or someone's going to be named right or justified and someone is going to be named as the wrongdoer, that I think, as Chris described, much of the wanting to go to court or seeking that is based, I like to refer back to that movie, Kramer versus versus Kramer, you know, where there yeah. we paraded a bunch of, you know, people up in court and it really was about people's character and court doesn't work that way anymore. The court very much doesn't see itself as I'm the one who's going to decide who was the wrongdoer and who was the right doer and who's the better parent and who's the worst parent. As Chris said, like there's a very kind of basic set of guidelines of the law that they're going to apply and it's much more like a civil law experience than a criminal law experience, which people often are familiar with from TV. So, you know, I just wanted to add that perspective as to why people have that misconception that, um, you know, Chris described. I think in terms of, you know, how do we get there and what happens, and I'll say the female perspective, but I might also broaden that to whoever might be feeling more vulnerable, and in some cases financially, whoever's the more vulnerable one, so perhaps someone else has been the breadwinner or someone else has been managing the finances, or someone else has been the primary caregiver, and now I'm the vulnerable spouse because I haven't had, I haven't been doing that, or maybe I'm seen as incapable of doing that or being portrayed that way and things like that. So whether it's the man or the woman, the sense of I'm the vulnerable one and I need somebody who's going to protect me. And so looking Mm -hmm. to the judge to become the protector. And Mm -hmm. um, the truth is that when people can take some time and learn more about how the process works, learn how they can get support to not feel vulnerable anymore when they go into the process, they can really see that there's a much healthier way and a much more empowering way to go through this than trying to rely upon someone else to be one's defender. Mm. Well, I'm I'm hearing um, a question I'm sure a listener is asking, which is, well, isn't a court appropriate in some cases? And if so, when? Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> if I could jump in, um, uh, yes, you know, a court is certainly appropriate in some cases, and um, typically we find those cases that are um, what we call high conflict types of cases, uh, where the spouses uh, really have little or no opportunity to, uh, uh, based on the circumstances that bring them to the divorce, um, their dynamic, the relationship towards one another, um, that's going to make it difficult, if not impossible, to work collaboratively in any way 
Um, maybe all lines of communication have broken down. So they, they absolutely need to speak through an attorney. They need that attorney as the mouthpiece to represent them through the divorce. Um, the court, as we alluded to earlier, um, uh, both Adina and I offers a structure uh, for uh, couples uh, who are divorcing to go through a process that's very structured. Uh, uh, there's law uh, that applies uh, to their particular case, and it's applied very strictly. Um, and those types of couples need that structure. Uh, they need to know what they're looking at, you know, because they can't really resolve anything on their own. They don't have the flexibility because they're not collaborative to be able to maybe go off the record, so to speak, and resolve something on their own or be out of the box and maybe uh, figure something out that maybe a judge, an attorney, or a court uh, uh, does not have to figure out for them. So mm -hmm. um, so, so the high conflict cases, um, cases where there's abuse involved, you know, typically, um, those cases are not going to be good for a collaborative setting. And, and uh, in those cases, couples will need, uh, you know, the benefit of a, of a contested court process. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it's, it's sometimes it's necessary to, just to hold the other party accountable to what they are supposed to do, um, assuming that they would not do that outside of court. The way to hold the other party accountable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, again, uh, as part of the myths, you know, the, you know, one spouse may think, well, the only way to hold that party accountable. Because I am feeling angry, I am feeling upset, I am feeling vindictive or resentful, is to take them to court. Okay, and somehow that court, that process will provide some type of accountability for their actions uh, and what they've done uh, to lead this couple to divorce. Now, the, you know, the biggest problem is these these spouses that end up in court are not. Uh, willing or not in a position or not open to each owning the situation. You know, it's really nobody's fault that you're there. This is what I tell my clients all the time. It, it's uh, you both have to own up to the fact that you're there uh, and you both have to take responsibility for how you got there. Very, very important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's also, um, I can imagine used as a scare tactic. I'm going to take you to court. And, um, you know, leaving the other party shaking in his or her boots and as a way to maybe manipulate them to do what, you know, the other party wants them to do. Part of the mis mm -hmm. myth and misconception, I'm sure, as well. Uh, Dina, right, I'd right. like you to jump in, in there. Um, well, just a couple of things quickly is one is I think that you made an adjustment in language, which is exactly what I was going to suggest is that the question of whether it's appropriate, whether court is ever appropriate or whether it is necessary. And I think, mm. you know, through Chris, Chris's conversation that it becomes necessary in certain cases. I'm not sure. I, I guess I haven't fully thought through that whether I'd ever say like it's appropriate, like this is the mm. really the desired option, but certainly there are times when it becomes a necessary option. And I think one thing we haven't really mentioned in here yet that I just want to put into that, that sometimes, you know, moves it to a necessary situation is sometimes there's mental illness on the part mm. of one mm. partner, yes. one spouse that makes them unable to really participate in the process effectively and therefore, you know, necessitates that there becomes a force that 
dictates how things will happen because the mental mm-hmm. capacities and the rationality and, you know, the working through emotions that's required in order to do something more collaborative is not available for somebody. And it's not insignificant. It's a pretty, you know, there, it's a significant factor for many people um, in divorce. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to mention that. And, yeah. and, and to add, and to add that, um, you know, some type of alcohol or drug issue or problem, in addition to mental health, you know, is oftentimes circumstances where you find uh, couples having to go to court. Okay. Well, I want to spend the bulk of our time, the remaining time, talking about mediation as an alternative to court. So, um, why Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about the distinction between mediation and court. Sure. Uh, and I, that can be a whole separate call, but uh, I'll try, I'll try to keep it, con- keep it condensed. Oh, yeah, minutes, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I'll try less than that. Um, okay. Well, you know, mediation then, uh, as we, as we know, or may be aware is, is an opportunity for spouses to come together collaboratively and participate in a process, an out of court process where they themselves are in firm control over all of their decisions that they're going to make with reference to their divorce settlement, okay, their marital settlement agreement. Um, This is an agreement that they take ownership of, okay, and whatever they want together, whatever they work out together is what the agreement is. So uh, there's not any intervention or any influence by judges, attorneys, or the court system that couples that come to mediation agree that they want to bypass that process because they themselves instinctively know what their family needs more so than any other professional, you know, that would be a a part of the the litigated divorce process, the judge, the attorney, uh, and anyone else. So that's why they come to mediation as opposed to going to court where they're not able to be collaborative and agree and they need someone else to make the decision for them. Uh, the mediation process, at least by our program, uh, soup to nuts can take anywhere from three to six, four to seven months, uh, including the filing and, and the waiting period to get a divorce decree. Uh, two years or more in Pennsylvania in a contested divorce. So if one, one files a divorce, the other contests, uh, that's a minimum of two years right there. Typically two to four years is the time, the time span or the time frame in which to complete a contested divorce. Um, cost, of course, uh, mediation, um, you know, not only is it time efficient, but it's very much more cost efficient, uh, costing a very small fraction of what couples will spend when they go to court. And Adina has already talked about some of the astronomical costs that she's been dealing with and that I used to see in private practice uh, and what legal fees can cost. Um, mediation, uh, certainly much more cost effective and cost efficient. Um, and my goodness, most importantly, and I should have mentioned this first, is the children. So, you know, any case where children are involved, um, they're completely not involved in the mediation process at all. They do not participate in the process. They're never asked to to uh, to speak or testify, that kind of thing, like they could be if they went to court, uh, which can be very in- intimidating, very daunting to a child, and, and also very um, emotionally damaging when they 
have to be put in, a, in an awkward position to have to tell a judge or a master, well, geez, who do you want to be with, your mother or your father? You know, and having them asking them to make that choice, you know, um, in, in, in a very intimidating place like a court or, you know, in judges' chambers, where, which is typically where they go. So, um, so those are really three of the four ch uh, chief differences between the two. Um, as you can see, there are very sharp differences. Yeah, thank you for that. And um, I'm listening, Adina, I'm listening to what Chris said, and he mentioned control. I'm curious, from your perspective, the vulnerable, as you described earlier, in the myths and misconceptions, how would uh, someone who's a very vulnerable have any idea or sense of control in a situation like this, in mediation? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question. We must have, have been having a telepathic moment between us. <laughs> We're connected like that. <laughs> um, I was going to say, if I, there's one thing I would really want people to get from this call if they feel concerned about mediation because, you know, the other person may, they may feel bullied by them or they may feel intimidated by them or they hold all the financial keys or any of those kinds of things is that mediation doesn't mean you're thrown into the room, just the two of you, and you have no other lifelines or resources or things like that. And very often, some of the cases that Chris and I have seen work is when there really is a team approach. And so if finances is an area of vulnerability, there are professionals like a CDFA, a certified divorce financial analyst, who can be brought into the picture to support one party or both and still participate in the mediation process. So somebody can gain the understanding, the ability to negotiate and communicate and understand their finances before doing that piece. I, as a coach, I work with people on, you know, negotiating and on feeling confident and on thinking through, you know, how they want to present themselves and what things are most important to them and what will I have to do, you know, in those conversations, what do I, you know, how does the process work? So there's a coach, there's a certified divorce financial analyst or a financial planner, Certainly people can have therapists and people can have supporting attorneys. I mean, mainline family and many mediators do this is that they have a list of attorneys who are mediation friendly so that you can get to, re to review and advise on the side. The two attorneys, if both parties had one, would not talk to each other. You would still do the negotiation in the mediation room, but it doesn't mean you can't get advice from one or that you can't have somebody look over things before you sign. So it's really important for somebody who's feeling vulnerable for any reason to know that you're not abandoned, you're not alone if you choose mediation, especially in the area where you feel some sense of insecurity, that there is a whole team of people who can support the process and enable you then to still collaboratively work toward um, a solution that's good for the family. So what if one spouse Let's go back to the team approach. What if one spouse, Adina's, yes, thumbs up, this is, this is what I want to do, and the other spouse is like, not having it. I'm ready to go to court. Does the team approach um, support that, or that's a, an approach once the parties have agreed to mediation? Um, you mean, how can, what if one says, I want to mediate, and the other one says, I don't want to mediate? How does the team approach yes. support them there? Is that your question? If it's, so, if it's you know what? Yes. 
Yeah, so, so it does, I think, in some ways, because I know that when I work with clients in doing this is that I always encourage, like, let's take one step at a time. Let's not plan out, like, how, where, exactly how you're going to get here or there, the next step, and all the way to the end. Let's take one step, and we talk about how to have that conversation with spouse. Or perhaps, you know, we're able to say, I know you think you want to go to court. What if we just have a consultation and it's free and whatever that we just work on? How does the conversation go that might be different from how it might typically go that would make your partner, your spouse be defensive? And then what kind of very, very small baby steps can we take? Because most people think in big steps. I got to do this and I got to get this done. And the big steps often set off like little landmines between couples that cause people to get defensive or put their back up or resist things. Little steps tend to um, work better. And this is a process because of the emotions that are involved that really take time to navigate. And so I would say for me, that's where I've seen the greatest success when one says, no, I don't want to do that, of helping to make a shift is by thinking about how that conversation goes, by suggesting little exploratory steps before final decisions are made. Mm. I want to go back to something you said, Chris. Uh, you said that uh, one of the most important things, at least to you, is that children do not have to participate. But what if one party actually wants the children to participate because they want the children to be able to speak for who's the better parent or who they really want to be with? Yes. Well, first I'll say, Pam, that um, – when I say children do not participate in the mediation process, I, what I what is meant is that you know logistically they they don't come to meetings, they don't sit in the room, you know they don't take part in the discussions. Uh, does not mean that um, the the input of the children, and especially older children uh, who are still minors but they're you know older, um, that we should not listen to and uh, hear uh, and and take their input. Um, uh, so what I tell couples in that, in that situation when they, cause, cause I do get that question, you know, sometimes couples will come in and they'll say, well, you know, to what extent do, do my children have any say, uh, or input in this parenting agreement that we're, that we're negotiating here? And what I tell them is I say, absolutely, especially with older children, and I give them some strategies on how to approach the children, since the children are not in the meeting itself. But what, we, what, we, what they want to tell the children is that, you know, mom and dad are, you know, going through this process. We're doing it civilly. We're doing it amicably. And uh, just trust that we're doing things that are, that are in your best interest as, as, the, as the child or as the children. And in the case with older children, um, you want to let them know that certainly we are open to listening to your input in terms of where you think, uh, what you think might serve your best interest in terms of where in a given week you think, uh, you, you know, without, without the fine line there is without asking them to make a choice, but just accepting their input. But then ultimately understanding that my, this is mom and dad's decision that we're making on your behalf, uh, on behalf of your best interest. But we do want you to have a, a say or an input. We're not asking you to choose one parent over the other, but we are according you with that level of respect uh, to listen to what you have to say and to accept your input. 
so that mom and dad can listen and then perhaps if it's in your best interest to implement your ideas into the parenting agreement. So, so there's a fine line uh, in, in that we give the children in mediation a say. We give them an opportunity to provide input, especially older children. But we also want to make it clear that they, the children themselves, do not decide where they go. The parents make that ultimate decision. Got it. So, Chris and Adina, one, one more question here because we're going to be wrapping up in a few seconds. Is mediation only for the rational, open-minded, highly mature couple? Um, Chris, I'll jump in there. Um, Go ahead. You know, we had a case that, we, you know, we actually had together, and it was a case that on its face, you know, would have been, you know, nobody would have said this was a mediation case. In fact, everyone had advised, in fact, it was the client who was working with me at the time, you know, you have to go to court. There was a significant amount of bullying. There was even, you know, kinds of abuse going on and things like that. And in working with the client and looking at the finances of it, I mean, financially, it would have been completely devastating. She, you know, would have walked away with nothing and even less than nothing, like a huge amount of debt to do that. And yet she had a spouse that was seemingly not at all a candidate for um, mediation. And, you know, we they mediated anyway. They ended up mediating. And how did that happen? Um, it happened with the support. As long as one spouse can really stay steady and learn to navigate the turbulence of, you know, a spouse who might be more volatile or might be, you know, more angry or might be prone to manipulation. If that other spouse can find a way to remain steady, to become informed, get knowledgeable and learn how probably perhaps for the first time not to be bullied through this process, which ultimately serves them later, then we've had cases that have succeeded in doing that. And so, you know, it, it's very, very rare that there are some, but it's very rare that like two people walk in and it's like, okay, you know, everything that's best, whatever. People are getting divorced because there are difficult emotions there. It's like by definition. So, but the, the team approach, the taking things slowly, allowing time for some of the emotions to dissipate, um, and then coaching at least one party, if not both, to be able to hold steady through some of the turbulent times. It's not only, it didn't, doesn't only work with the most mature, <laughs> as you've described. I want to make sure I leave time for you to, to give us your final golden nuggets. Uh, but before I do that, can you just quickly compare the cost mediation versus court? What are we looking at? Okay. Well, um, first I have to say, and I'll, I'll try to keep this brief, Pam, is that there's different types of mediation out there that's, that's offered in the state of Pennsylvania. There's different types of mediators, attorneys, non-attorneys. So it's a lot of different services for divorce out there with mediators uh, with uh, varying degrees of fees. Um, so it's difficult across the board, um, you know, to, to talk about, you know, what, you know, sort of a, um, it's, in other words, there's a wide range of costs. Um, mm. you know, I can tell you, I can tell you what, um, in our, we offer an all in one program. Um, and it's a soup to nuts approach beginning to end mediation, draft agreement, uh, finalization of agreement. And then we assist with the divorce filing process. This is an all in one service. 
and we always um, we always um, our fees are always uh, assessed on a flat fee basis. So it's one price for all, uh, the totality of all the services involved, and there's no hourly rates that we use. It's just one price for the for the whole bag of services that are customized to that particular couple's needs. Uh, so typically one of our cases are going to cost a couple under $10,000 and there's could be a wide range within that, you know, within that, uh, you know, that, uh, that stretch. Um, going to court, um, of course, we, as we said earlier, uh, two year or more process, attorneys charge on an hourly rate for all the work that they do. Uh, typically 250 to 350 an hour. Some attorneys will charge even higher, the higher priced attorneys. Um, on average, you will spend, uh, in a contested divorce, 30 to 40 thousand dollars, 30 to 50, I would say, total. And unfortunately, the more you fight, the more you argue, the less you get along, the higher up that number goes. So we've seen fees in, in excess of $100,000, $150,000 or more along the main line here. Um, and uh, that's just really what you're looking at, uh, one versus the other. Yeah, that's helpful. Well, we, we need to wrap up now. So, Chris, why don't you just give us your last thoughts or important resources that our callers can tap into? And if you could do that for us within 30 seconds, that'd be great. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, um, I, you know, and I, I don't want this to sound promotional by any means, but I, I, I really um, believe in our website, and it's, it's very educationally oriented. And I would commend everybody to, to, to take a look at that site, uh, www.myhealthydivorce.com, because there's uh, just a myriad of resources and information, uh, free downloads. It's all free information for uh, you know anyone who's thinking about going through contemplating divorce uh, can learn so much from that website. And I would just simply say, um, if you're in this situation and you're facing a divorce or uh, thinking about going through it, you have to own your situation uh, and be be real and true to yourself. I know that it has the, you know um, this can sometimes be cliched, but but more it, it, this has never been more true than in a divorce. You have to own up to your situation and understand that uh, not only one person uh, is at fault here. Uh, you both have to own. Uh, why, why you're there. You have to own the circumstances of what got you there. And um, if you assume that attitude, it's a much healthier attitude, and it's going to help you to be more collaborative towards one another. Awesome. Thank you. Adina, how about you give us your final thoughts? Um, two quick final thoughts is, you know, I think Chris said one of the keys, which is to educate oneself. The less we know, the more anxious we tend to feel, and then the more impulsive we tend to behave. So educating oneself is really key to being able to do this in a healthy way. And the second one is time. It is amazing how quickly people act, and oftentimes we act quickest when we're in the height of anger or in the peak of our fear, and we don't make the best decisions. It's actually a scientific truth that we don't make the best decisions when we're in those states. So giving oneself a little time and space and not feeling like everything has to happen right away can also really significantly change the game of the process. Um, and in terms of a resource, 
Um, one of the, I mean, coming into divorce both professionally and personally and understanding the nature of how quickly things can become contentious and how difficult it is to grapple with those emotions that end up driving the process was the primary impetus for me to create a multimedia program that some of you have heard me talk about called the Divorce Companion and really is meant for people at the early stages, just even contemplating the idea thinking about it, searching for resources, that this is a multimedia interactive program designed to help educate, slow the process down, and support healthy decision-making. And people can look at that at divorcecompanion.com, which is also linked to my website, divorceessentials.net, and essentials with an S at the end where, there, again, there's lots of resources and blog articles and information and things like that. Awesome. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Adina. And thank you to everyone who's listening into this conversation. I applaud all of you listeners for taking on this very difficult and complex thing called divorce. But being on the call to get the knowledge and information, I hope you do feel knowledgeable and comforted that you can get through this process. We do want to hear from you, and we want to know how to reach you. So please visit us, Mainline Family Law Center's website, my HealthyDivorce.com, where you'll find lots of free resources and good information. You can also find information on Adina and can also get information on me, your host. How you bounce back from divorce and other setbacks depends on your willingness to deal with the unfinished business of your past. So learn breakthrough lessons for bouncing back and my book by visiting MyMuddyHighHeels.com if you are up to that. Men, you may not wear high heels, but you may benefit from lessons as well. So please be sure to visit. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Healthy Divorce Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. You can find me, Sharon Pastore, or my partner, Chris Pastore, at MyHealthyDivorce.com. If you like this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, you can have a healthy divorce. It's how you divorce that matters.